Welcome to Conversations 360 podcast and this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience shed light on what's taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. You know, we're not, we're not in a game show here about waiting to, you know, see which bachelor makes it or the bachelorette makes it to the next round. But I mean, people need some certainty. So I think people who have businesses want to know, gee, is my product going to be taxed? Will I still be able to uh, be able to manufacture and export out of China? That's Christine Houston talking of the uncertainty in the world right now and its impact on business. Christine is the founder and managing director of ESGI, ranked as one of the top 10 best headhunting firms in Asia. Her firm specializes in senior-level appointments in Asia for multinational clients. I I met Christine some years ago in Hong Kong, where she maintains a formidable network of people I like to think of as global citizens, each of them fascinating. She's been generous in including me in her wide and diverse circle, for which I'm grateful. Christine's an American, and she maintains homes in both Hong Kong and New York and has lived in Japan as well. You'll hear she's a straight-talking, opinionated font of information based on her keen perceptions about Asia and the West. Christine's range of subjects in this podcast episode is wide. For example, she talks of how the buying habits of millennials in China have shifted from a focus on handbags. She mentions a woman a millennial who clued her in. We're actually much more interested now, she said, in, you know, couture clothing as watches and that kind of thing. But she said also, she said, home. So much like the in the 90s was the decade of the home in the United States, that's become very similar in China now. So you'd be surprised. You see Le Creuset, you see, um, you know, all the German kitchens in China. And 20 years ago, you know, you wouldn't have hot water in a kitchen. Christine has lots to say about life in China right now, including the tightening of censorship, and at the same time, how censorship has become increasingly difficult, noting, for example... It's, it's harder to keep an educated group of people confined. Her comments on attitudes toward health are illuminating. For example... Also, the other thing is out here... Uh, in, I'm saying largely Asia, 60 is considered old. So, you know, if you got sick at 65, they'd say, well, you know, you're old anyway. So it's a very different point of view than the, than a very developed country like the United States. Even in the UK, um, 65 is considered 70. Oh, well, why are we bothering? In the US, what is it? The 60 is the new 40? For this conversation, I was in Boston speaking by phone with Christine, who was in Hong Kong. So let's get started. Christine, I'm so delighted that uh, we're going to have this conversation because I know, given the fact that you have a foot in at least two parts of the world, if not more, certainly Asia, specifically Hong Kong and all that that represents in Asia, and then also the U.S., you are a perfect person to engage in a conversation about your life, work, and experience, and how it sheds light on what is happening between these two very important parts of our world. One of the things you and I have talked about in the past is what's happening in terms of the 
the, the changes over the last 15 years and how they've affected the middle class, this highly quickly developing middle class in Asia, specifically millennials. You had mm-hmm. great stuff to say about that. But talk to me about that. Um, I think, you know, the millennials, I, well, let me go back. I I think the the emerging middle class has been most apparent in China. Not that it hasn't happened in other countries, but you have such a huge population there. It's happening in other places now, like Indonesia, but not to the extent it already has happened in China. So, you know, the millennials, it, it used to be, I think everybody has a picture of the Chinese buying, you know, Louis Vuitton handbags mm-hmm. or uh, Christian Louboutin shoes. And what's happened is the the new middle class, the, let's say the millennials in their 20s and 30s, a lot of them that certainly that I meet uh, have been ed- have been educated abroad at some point in their lives, uh, or their two college degrees and a couple. They are delaying having children or or a child later. And so I had recently had a young woman speak to me. She was educated, a a very good undergraduate degree in China, and then later on in the United States in an MBA program. Her husband was the same. And she said to me, she said, you know, she said, people think that she said, we go out and buy handbags and jewelry. She said, the fact is, she said, she said, I'm 33. She said, we don't have kids. She said, I have all my bags that I need. So she said, we're actually much more interested now, she said, in you know, couture clothing as watches and that kind of thing. But she said also, she said home. So much like the, in the nineties was the decade of the home in the United States. That's become very similar in China now. So you'd be surprised. You see Le Creuset, you see, um, you know, all the German kitchens in China and 20 years ago, you know, you wouldn't have hot water in a kitchen. Mm -hmm. Um, So now it's become very much like, you know, an upscale um, city in the United States. So they're buying home. And I think retailers, this still haven't quite caught on to it yet. Um, They're still thinking in terms of bags and shoes. So does does that also mean that because uh, I was so impressed some years ago when I would go to China that people didn't really entertain in their homes. They right. went out to dinner, partly because homes were so small and they just yeah. they just they just weren't prepared. They didn't have the looker say. So has that changed, too? Has it changed the whole way of entertaining? I actually I don't think the young Chinese still uh, remember they're both working mm-hmm. Uh it, it's not as easy to find help as it was 20 years ago. So I think they might still go out, but that maybe they'd have people at home. But it's actually, it's about the show. You know, it's about having a nice home and being able to enjoy it when they're at home. I don't know, mm-hmm. honestly, whether that's changed that much. Um, I, And, you know, traditionally, Chinese always go out and the families go out every Sunday. And, you know, the midday lunch, the dim sum uh, and get together. So I think... It's round tables. It's big families. So I think that that still goes on. I don't think there's been much of an increase in home entertaining like you and I would perceive it in the West. Mm-hmm. But actually, I don't know that we do it as much anymore. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the millennials, and clearly that that is such a big change from apartments mm. that didn't have running water not that long ago, and now they are show places. The fact that Absolutely. there has been this kind of slowdown, uh, uh, even though it's still a big uh, GDP, the fact is that there has been a bit of a slowdown. Have, have the millennials picked up on this in the sense that they are any more cautious than they were before, or is it still full steam ahead, um, even though things aren't uh, perhaps as explosive as they were in terms of growth, that is still just fine? What's What's the story there? Well, I think what's interesting is you're having a just uh, for all that Mao 
did in 1949 or wanted to do, there's an increasing wealth gap in China now. So you have, you know, the very edge. Well, the, the interesting thing is you do have a bigger middle class, but, you know, you have way too many college graduates coming out of China or graduating from university in China than there are really good jobs. So you have a glut of college-educated kids who don't have great jobs as opposed to the people who have no college education who are still the factory workers, you know, moving around China. And then you have the uber-rich who are, you know, this, the, like the couple I described, you know, they've gone to school abroad. And, you know, it's interesting. Some of the companies, like certain consulting firms, I've been quite impressed with them. They will send, they'll hire a person who has a good undergraduate degree from China. They speak English, of course. And then if they're a promising employees, they send them back most often to the, most always to the U.S. to a very good school and pay for it, including a stipend. And the only obligation is for the individual to come back and work for another two years. And it actually is like a loan. Uh, because they work and they work off the loan over two years, but they don't have to pay out any cash. And these, they're very impressive young people, but this is the way this particular consultancy um, attracts good people and keeps good people. And, you know, the, and the, the young Chinese, they, they'll, they'll leave, but they're not anxious to leave. They're not looking at it as, oh, look what I got, and I'm going to leave and get a better job. They actually appreciate the loyalty. So it's a very, it's a big change. That sounds like a, a really big change. Now, when they come back here, you're talking about a graduate degree, right? A, an MBA? Yes, an MBA. Always an, M- mm-hmm. always an MBA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ten years ago, you would have, when this happened a lot um, in Hong Kong as well, people would get sent over by their companies and then they come back and quit. I mean, I've had candidates over the years who have done that, which I don't think is, to me, is a, it's, it's a morality issue. Uh, this particular consultancy is handled very well. They said, look, you know, just work for us for two years. And it's de- it declines. The amount of money they, in effect, owe if they leave declines by the month. It's quite fascinating. So this is, this is a big change. But now that you've brought up this education in the West, let's talk about all those graduates who are um, coming out of schools in China mm. and don't have jobs. What's going to happen with all that? What, what's your sense about all that? Well, I think this is a great concern of the Chinese, of the leadership in China. Um, because they they have all these kids coming out and they are not, because of the slowdown in the economy, they are not having the same opportunities that they would have had 10 years ago. And, you know, it's going to foment, uh, you know, unrest. And I think this has always been a great concern of the Chinese leadership anyway. But now you have an even more educated uh, group of people who are going to be unhappy. And the, the other thing is, too, it's quite interesting. There are a couple of things that have happened over the last 10 or 15 years that all work in concert, and I'm not sure which has the greatest influence. So the government started allowing people to travel individually as opposed to traveling within controlled tour groups. So as a result, you know, we saw a huge influx into Hong Kong first, and I was just in Europe in September, and my God, Rome in September, uh, you know, I was about the only non-Asian there. It felt like a Trevi fountain. So large groups of people coming. And I think, for, so people who have traveled outside of China for the first time are beginning to see, and I think they were shocked when they came to Hong Kong. Um, these, you know, they, they knew that, you know, in the, in the early 50s, China was a poor, uh, Hong Kong was a poor place with, you know, immigrants who have left the mainland. And it's a wealthy city. So all of a sudden, Chinese, were, their eyes were open and they went, wow. And so now you have TV, you have the, and the internet. 
And I don't think there are enough sensors, despite the population in China, that can keep the Internet down. So you have, you know, a confluence of events. You have people traveling outside, seeing what the rest of the world is like. You have um, uh, people who have access to media. And again, they can't keep it down. They have access to the Internet. So this is why Xi Jinping has become quite um, stricter in the last 18 or 18 months or two years. But I'll give you an example. I was in China about four or five months ago and I could not, I was in a five-star hotel in the executive center. You know, I could, there what, was... What, what hotel, I mean, what city <clears throat> are we talking about? I was, Shang, I was in Shanghai at right. the Shangri-La in Pudong. Got it. And ordinarily you can get an English language newspaper. You can get access to, to all your online papers and everything. Not now. And the South China Morning Post was the only uh, English language newspaper and it was a day old. So I spoke to the staff and they were, of course, didn't want to say. And then I spoke to two candidates. One was an American and the other one was, was a Singaporean and they both travel in and out of China. And I asked, I was complaining how this had gotten so strict and they said, oh, they said that was because of the Panama Papers. And I said, what do you mean? They said, when the Panama Papers came out, Xi Jinping's family was named in it. He saw that and immediately shut down everything. So these two people said to me, if you speak to any local Chinese, he said, if you say Panama Papers, they'll say, huh? And have no idea what that's going on. So it's really interesting. So the leadership is very, very nervous. And if you read anything about Chinese politics, Xi Jinping has been trying to consolidate his power over the last two years uh, because I think they realize that, you know, it's, it's harder to keep an educated group of people confined and there's there's, a, there's, a, there's an aspect of this that you just touched on, but I want to bring it out so that we, we actually clarify it. The other piece is that the West certainly, uh, I think for the most part, thinks that the Chinese are reluctant to speak up about anything, that there's real, as you say, things are getting even stricter. But in fact, people are speaking up, at least that that's helped to um, handle sort of fed much of the the attacks on corruption, for example, in some parts of the country, right? So how is this whole ability to speak up? Are they just selective in what it is they talk about? Certainly yes. they talk about pollution, but what? how does that work? Now, if you're a political dissident, if you speak out against the government on, you know, like uh, freedom of information, you're jailed. Mm-hmm. So yes, people are very selective about what they talk about. So this whole, uh, you know, crackdown on corruption, this was also... I'm a little cynical about it. Yes, it was Xi Jinping cracking down on con- corruption, but it also allowed him to eliminate people who would challenge his authority and consolidate. So power. it's easy to f- mm-hmm. exactly. So it's easy to find a whistleblower if the government is sanctioning a, cru- a crackdown on corruption. All right. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm I'm skeptical about you know how how much of yes I'm sure he's happy to crack down on corruption as long as it doesn't affect him. So back to the stuff that is about uh, the environment, about pollution, about dirty air, about that sort of thing. Are people speaking up more about that sort of thing, and has it had an impact on the government? Uh, you know what? We don't hear a lot of that down here, and I don't think it's you know it's not allowed to be printed in China. Mm-hmm. It's just not. I mean, you have you know they have a separate um, monitoring system or. A, rating system for pollution. If you look at pictures of Beijing right now, it's, you know, the airport has been canceling flights in Beijing for the last week because the pollution is so bad. It's a combination of, you know, the still burning coal trapped by humidity. 
Uh, plus, I think the, you know, some of the sands come off the Gobi Desert. So it's quite, you know, it's kind of an orange haze. No, not, not a fun place to be right now. Mm-hmm. So we're in kind of a whole new ballgame globally because of the um, new leadership that's coming into the United States. What yep. kind of impact is all of that having on what's going on in China and Hong Kong and your part of the world? Well, I mean, people are very nervous out here because, you know, again, I hate to say this, but people in the U.S., I think don't, a lot of them don't particularly read about, I don't read, period. Um, You know, they listen to Fox News, but if you read anything about politics out here, what's going on, you know, the South Korean government is in crisis. They don't know whether she's going to resign or whether she's going to be impeached. They share a border with North Korea. When you had Trump during the election saying, well, it's fine if Japan and Korea both, you know, take care of their own defense and get nuclear weapons. Well, that's, you know, you don't say things like that lightly because it makes people out here nervous because, and everyone's very, very nervous about the Chinese. You know, they've built this big, um, I guess, city island. It, I guess it was an atoll before, but they built it up. So it's a military complex in the middle of the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. You know that there's been controversy with the Philippines. And actually the world court, I forget which particular uh, court, ruled in favor of the Philippines saying, yes, they, they, they did have a right or they did Yes, they had a right to fish in this particular part of the South China Sea. And this went on for two years. All well and good. The Chinese were furious. They said, no, we don't recognize that. So then the Chinese engage in checkbook diplomacy. So, of course, you have a new leader in the Philippines, Duterte. Uh, and the Chinese have bought him. So they went out and they, they gave $26 billion to the Philippines. I don't know which projects they were earmarked for. And so Duterte has now said, okay, well, we're going to, you know, we, we don't, we're not going to, the court recognized this dispute, but we're, that's fine. We agree with China. We're not going to so, push it now. Mm-hmm. Well, no, we're not going to push it all. We'll just mm-hmm. do whatever the Chinese say in effect. Uh, so you have all of this going on. So people, I don't know that Japan is nervous, but South Korea is nervous because of North Korea. Uh, you have instability as so this the Philippines also he's uh, busy killing people, uh, executing <laughs> them. And he's just yeah, and it's you know it's how many people he told he used some expletives with the uh, President Obama, and then you have some uh, also uh, some issues in Thailand. Their king has just died. Not that he's been present for the last few years, but it was it's a big upheaval, and they had a you know the military is running it. So I mean, he's you have a lot going on in the region. Mm-hmm. So. I think whether you agree with uh, Clinton or Obama, uh, the fact is, had she been elected, I think people have said, okay, we, we know what we're getting. And the concern right now is that we don't know what we're getting. You know, we've never had a president who tweeted in the middle of the night before. So I think that this is a big concern. Um, it's, it's, you know, a few things going on. So how about business in general? Does that mean that, does that have a chilling effect on, on uh, people moving ahead with their plans to expand their businesses, either in Hong Kong and or elsewhere? What have you seen that reflects that sort of? Uh, well, I think, I think in terms of sectors, like the financial services sector. So as you know, I work a lot in banking insurance and asset management. As I think I mentioned to you before, one of the um, financial service uh, financial services practice leaders for a major consultancy said all of their clients were delighted because they feel there'll be a rollback in regulations. So American banks are quite happy, insurance companies, a loosening of regulations. On the manufacturing side, I think it depends. Uh, I People who engage in 
import-export between Asia or between, let's say, China and the United States don't know what to think because there's been a lot of talk about, you know, slapping tariffs on both ways. So I think that depends on whether you're a Walmart. Are you expecting stuff to be taxed when it comes into the United States? If you're a carrier air conditioner or another manufacturer who's manufacturing in China, what's going to happen? Do you expect to be taxed? So I think, again, it's it's nervousness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what's the answer to all this? If you were going to wave a magic wand about this where where would you hope that the change can be affected and who who could make it happen well i guess uh, Big whether question. I, well no whether i agree with what what the decision is i guess it would be for people to have some sort of certainty you know we're not we're not in a game show here about waiting to you know see which bachelor makes it or the bachelorette makes it to the next round but i mean people need some certainty so i think people who have businesses want to know gee is my product going to be taxed will i still be able to uh be able to manufacture and export out of china um so i oh and the other thing that's been the other thing that's happening in china is the chinese have imposed stricter capital control so it's very hard for companies to get it's a, hard, harder for Chinese companies to get money out of China for investment, which has driven a lot of growth in Asia and as well as M&A activities in other countries. Uh, so the Chinese are very concerned, not very, yes, they're concerned. I guess very would be a good word since it's slowing down. They don't want so much capital leaving the country. Uh, so it's also difficult for foreign companies to get their money out, uh, which has always been the case, but it's just getting harder. So I guess certainty would be would be a big help in terms of the U.S. administration. Which is probably not going to happen for some time because we're, you know, uh, I think part of the nature of uh, this new administration appears to be that there are going to be lots of surprises and there will continue to be lots of surprises. So, yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, this is why I say it's not a game show. This is not about keeping people hanging on and turning on the TV every minute to watch you waiting for the next thing that will come out of your mouth or the next tweet you're going to make. It's just, you know, it's, it's a very um, unsettling. And the, the other thing is, too, I think that people, many people in the U.S. fail to realize. I've heard people say, well, who cares what foreigners think or what, you know, it's, it's our country. The fact is that no matter what the U.S. does at a high level, it affects everybody, everybody. Uh, and this is what people are very nervous about. Um, it's not that they don't like the United States. I think we've always been very admired. But this is very unsettling for everybody, which means that it has a negative impact on business. So let's let's look long term the way the Chinese often are thought of thinking. Yes. That is in hundreds and thousands of years. Yep. We don't have to go that far out. But, but Christine, when you look at uh, China, since that's such a big part of what you what you do look at all the time, do you continue to be bullish about the long term prospects for China? Oh yeah, because I mean, you know, I think anytime you, you know, there's always a joke out here about the, the difference between India and China. Um, yeah, India is a democracy, but who's growing faster? It's China. So, you know, when you do have central leadership. Um, it's, it's like, if you, as you know, Singapore on a much smaller scale. The government controls everything that happens, so they make, they make things happen. And it's the same thing with China. 
Although I think that in the case of China with a billion people, it's like, you know, it's like trying to turn around the Titanic or, or steer the Titanic. It's much bigger. Um, and, you know, this, it, the economy is so huge. The minute, as you know, the minute there's a slowdown in China, it affects the rest of the world. So, but long term, yes. I mean, it's been there for, you know, however, however many generations. So I don't think anybody's thinking that China will go away. I think it's going to be a matter of the Chinese leadership keeping the machine growing and also keeping people, you know, somewhat satisfied so there's not open revolt. So the major challenges to that picture, you've already named one, and that is pumping out a lot of people who are educated, informed, and out of work. Uh, yeah. They can't find work. That sounds like that's one challenge. You've yeah. also mentioned the environment, pollution problems. Yeah. We haven't touched on health care. And what what how that affects a country as big as China without uh, without what I understand is a really clear and and feasible healthcare system. Do you know much about that area? Is there any comment you could make about that? Is that something people should be yeah. worried about? No, people. Well, you know, people in China are accustomed to not having a good healthcare system. I mean, Hong Kong is different. Hong Kong has a fabulous public health care system, all right? It's not that you don't wait, like if you need a hip replacement or cataract surgery that's not urgent, you do have to wait, but it's absolutely free. And, the you know, it is it is astonishing um, how efficient the system is here. Um, so, I mean, I th- people in China are just, a co- they don't know any different. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of like the United States was before Obamacare. I mean, if you got sick, you went to the emergency room. Now people have insurance, whether you agree with the premiums or not, is a whole other story. But there's um, and there's an aging population in China. But there's a you know there's a different view of life. I mean, also the other thing is out here. Uh, in, I'm saying largely Asia. 60 is considered old. So you know if you got sick at 65, they'd say, well, you know, you're old anyway. So it's a very different point of view than the, than a very developed country like the United States. Even in the UK. Um, 65 is considered 70. Well, why are we bothering? In the U.S., what is it? The 60 is the new 40? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So does the one, the change in the one child rule, does, is that going to make any difference? Are people paying attention to that? You mentioned the, the, the young, wealthy couple who don't even have kids and may not plan to have them. Is there a shift in people's thinking about that, that maybe, maybe they don't need to have so many kids, although they thought they wished for more? Well, you know, the dirty little secret is that people did have more than one child. Not everybody, because the government made it so expensive and difficult. I I think what's interesting is among the more educated and affluent young Chinese, they're probably still going to have one child only, because I think they realize they want the best for that child. So it's, you know, you, you know, like you, you know what it's like to bring up a child in New York City. You know, you are crazed from the time this child is three, getting them into the right nursery school to get into the right kindergarten, to get into the right grammar school, and on and on and on. And it's very similar with the Chinese. So one of the big aspects of growth areas, and it's been for some time in China, is anything to do with education. Um, all of these, and it's Hong Kong as well, any kind of act after school activities, you know, they have, you know, language enhancement, dance, math, this, that, and the other thing. So you have one child and you devote, and remember, you have a couple with one child, and generally the child has four grandparents because people do live a long time. So you have this little princeling who you have um, six people focused on, okay? Your four grandparents and your parents. 
being brought along uh, to, to the point where you get to college. You brought up education, and I think that's an important thing. The, um, the fact is uh, people somewhere in the world think that uh, the rote system of learning, which is still very much in practice in China, is one yeah. that doesn't instill critical thinking, the kind of thing that some people think is necessary for innovation. Um, if that, if one believes that's the case, will that change at all? Or do these other programs, which are uh, uh, evidence that people do have a concern about making sure their kids are thinking critically, will that just fill the gap for those who can afford it and the other system will stay for time immemorial? Or do you see the possibility of even shifting the basic way kids get educated in China? You know, I think that the machine is so big um, and it's been in place for so long, even in Hong Kong. I mean, people are afraid not to send their kids to a local, you know, a very good local, uh, you know, like one of the the top band, first band tier, first tier school, sorry, uh, because that's the way they've done it. And everybody's always good enough for me. And they're afraid they're afraid to deviate too much. And you have a machine built up around that type of education system. Or think of it in the U.S. When you have a system, so you have all these companies like Kaplan and Princeton doing all these, you know, extracurricular things at older grades. It's very hard to turn around an, an education industrial complex like that. Uh, and somebody has to be the first. I think what you're seeing is a lot of people are, uh, in China who are wealthy are now starting to send their kids to high school in the U.S. Um, and so they can get English, you know, their English language uh, credibility and facility up so they can go to a U.S. university. Um, and you'll see, you're seeing more of that now. That's become a big business as well. But I think that, you know, by and large, the Chinese have done rote learning for years. And you can't argue with the results in terms of grades. Right. If you look at the the league tables for math and science, uh, it's always the Asians who come in first. Mm -hmm. Well, and you look at some of the real innovation that has taken place. You pointed out earlier that Americans are not not as aware as they need to be as to what what is really happening in China and how far they have advanced. The fact is, there's some pretty impressive uh, companies: Alibaba, Tencent, others, which have way passed the the United States in some of the work that they do. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, it, I, I don't know if I had mentioned to you, but 15 years ago, um, I could, it was very easy to get someone from the mainland to move to Hong Kong. And I've really been stymied in the last three or four years. And I remember interviewing a young woman, again, another young woman, different than the one I mentioned before. And she was also with, she was Harvard undergraduate. Uh, and I can't remember where she went to graduate school, but she worked for one of the major management consulting firms in China. And I asked, I was telling about this. I said, why won't people move to Hong Kong? So she said, well, you know, she said, look at it from our perspective. She said, we know the Hong Kong Chinese don't like us. They look down on us. She said, we have a perception of Hong Kong being a bunch of old Chinese people who got rich because they bought property years ago. And I can't say she's not too far from the truth. Uh, and she said all the innovation that's happening, she said, is happening in China, which again is true. Um, but I think from a perspective of the U.S., I think what concerns me as a U.S. citizen is that we have not, we are ignoring our education system and at our peril. And I think starting in the 90s, um, sorry, 80s, 
uh, when people, you know, we had the trickle down and let's cut taxes and we started starving education. If you think about it, if you went to a public school in the United States in the 60s and 70s, you could get a decent education and you would have art and music and PE, right? Not now. And I think we're not teaching people to read. We're not, I mean, the, I read some amazing statistics, only 8% of 14-year-olds have any sense of history. You know, we're just not teaching our, our kids as well as they should be taught. And we're not preparing them for the service economy that will be their future. And that is something that we as a country have a huge failing in. And this is where Asian countries get it. Yes, and I think you're right that we're not only not teaching American kids history, we're not giving them an appreciation for uh, the diversity of the world and what is happening elsewhere. There's still a real, cons- there, there is an opinion that this place is great, and if it isn't, we'll fix it, like, it, like we can somehow isolate ourselves from the rest of the world. So, well, but I think that – well, and these – the kids that we're talking about have no sense of this, but the, the – you know, this whole election has been run on make America great again, like bring back coal mining. Come on. This is not <laughs> going to happen. You know, and fa- factory jobs are not going to return to the United States. You know, they might talk about um, uh, one of the Japanese automakers building a plant there. Come on. Let's get real. We, ha- we have to educate – we, as a country, have to educate our students to be prepared for non-manufacturing jobs. And we're not doing it. Well, I think you're absolutely right. And I think there it's going to be interesting to see uh, what happens over the next several years with new leadership in Washington and, and uh, how we're going to do the kind of really increase the kind of global thinking that you're suggesting is an absolute necessity. It's, we uh, have to. It, we, we have to. And perhaps it means that individuals who in the past thought that this would just somehow happen, whether or not we were involved, not have now have to get a little more proactive. So, um, but you know, I think one of the things we've, uh, no matter how good or bad the economy is, I would say like when things slow down, I'm, we're still very busy because you know what, there is a, there is a shortage of talent globally for certain, uh, you know, high, high level. And I don't mean CEO level. I'm talking about key leadership jobs. Um, and I think that this, that we could have a whole other discussion on millennials, uh, let's say in the United States, because I think that there's a gap between, uh, what a millennial think they she or he or she has to do to get ahead and versus their expectation of what the employer is supposed to deliver so that's a that's a whole other subject uh for another conversation you're right and uh i'm actually i think you know i'm in this ted residency which it has a number yeah. of millennials in it and it has been an education for me so perhaps that's going to be my next series um well do you know, you know what one thing the uh, just i was talking to um a management consultant in Germany the other day, and he does a lot of training. And he was talking, he's in his 40s, he was talking about the millennials, and he said he's learning a lot from them. And he said for him it's about the way millennials like to show up and about how they learn, which is much quicker. You know, they don't want to do a three- or four-day course. They want to do things very quickly. And I said to him, I I think that there's an opportunity, not an opportunity, but I think there's a need to talk to management. So instead of figuring out a way to deliver the training to the millennial in the way that the millennials here, it's a, you know, it's, it sends up a flag to management. Gee, you know, we might need to change the way the company is structured Mm. because we're going to have all these millennials. You remember that we still have a, a 
big chunk of baby boomers who have yet to retire. That's coming, though. And so millennials are going to work in a whole different way. And I think that companies really haven't caught on to that fact. They're trying to figure out how to best um, communicate with millennials in the existing corporate structure. They may want to be more forward thinking about how to change the structure of the company uh, for this new workforce. Well, especially when you look at the way things are going right now, if we change nothing, by the year, is it 2020, we'll have 47% of the U.S. workforce will be uh, actually freelance workers. So that says that our corporations have been designed for a different population, which in the current one isn't particularly interested in being part of that. Uh, traditional well, corporate structure. You know, I don't uh, – actually, I don't know whether it's the, the carriage before the horse because I'm not sure whether three-quarters of the jobs – well, uh, an increasing number of jobs that are freelance are because companies want to avoid paying benefits, you know, which you can do with somebody who's freelance, uh, and that's a cost savings for the company, or whether it's because people don't want to work. Within you know, those I, I actually think that – Maybe a little bit I of actually, yeah, I think more people, the average person is probably more interested in having a safe, steady job and not working two or three jobs to make a living. I think the jury is out on that, but it might be that the selection that I've been looking at is a fairly self-selective one. So you're right, yeah. we could have another whole conversation on millennials. But this has been, uh, as usual with you, um always fascinating and Christine you are just a wealth of information and you have such an interesting way of connecting the dots between these two complex places that it's great fun to talk with you thank you so much thanks I always enjoy catching up Susan thanks This is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast. Please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings. And the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcast and this Asia and the West series. There's more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V 360 Podcast. And my personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. Thanks for listening.